Welcome to the Raft Podcast, Let's Fix Things, where Chus and myself, Joe Fletcher, explore the world of connected experiences, spanning from connected services, platforms, and devices over industries such as transportation, smart home, logistics, healthcare, and media. Chus and I started this podcast to explore design and strategy topics in more depth coming from the projects we handle in our design consultancy. Now, on to the show. So are you nauseous yet, or what's been going on since, uh, since the VR situation? Uh, it has worn off since this morning, but yeah, I did spend super much time in VR this weekend. Okay, so, so going back to last week, you got the PlayStation VR headset yep. thingy. Yeah, that one. Okay. <laughs> I saw you unbox it, but you didn't actually take it out or let us play with it in the studio. You just brought the box in to, to remind us that none of us have one, but, but you have one, and then you immediately took it away. Well, after I was Not a complete successful asshole. at putting no, it back fine. in the no. box, I, uh, I didn't want to open it anymore. <laughs> yeah, don't let us play with it. Okay, so you took it home. Yeah. So when you read the reviews online, everybody's comparing it to the more expensive uh, variants like the HTC Vive and uh, uh, the Oculus Rift. And I think it's, a, it's sort of an unfair comparison. And I actually had an amazing weekend with it and, and some really unexpected things happened with it. So I had my, uh, my wife try out VR for the first time. And a bit of background story, I, I used to play a lot of shooters on the console and also racing games. And I think I'm kind of good at it. But this weekend, I got my ass kicked by my wife on both types of games. Wait, how does that? Because you only have one headset, right? Yeah. Well, you play in order, basically. Oh, okay, and okay. You, you play for a score or a time. So but, the other person like sits there staring at you, looking like an idiot with a helmet on? Uh, you can stare at the screen <laughs> and see what they're seeing. It's not oh, like okay. that. But what I noticed is that they, they replicate the controller in virtual reality. So you can actually see your controller in front of you, even when you're wearing the goggles. And it turned out that for new players, the controller is not so much of a barrier anymore when you're playing in VR. So why do you think that is? Well, for instance, for this shooting game, you're not using the joysticks anymore to aim, but you're using the actual controller to point at things. And in VR, you see a hand holding a gun in front of you. So aiming is, is much more physical. It's much more using your, your yeah, muscle memory and other things than it is, can you control this tiny joystick and think of how the camera would turn. But you don't run into the problems. I mean, again, I don't have one of these at home, but you don't run into the problems where you have like a bunch of buttons all, all over the controller and you sort of have to learn the different button combinations. And I mean, that's what always uh, stopped me from, from gaming in the last few years after I stopped when I was a teenager. All these Games seem super simplified. So mm. when you get into a car, you have a brake and you have the gas and that's it, unless you want to use the gear shift. And in this shooting game, you have a reload button and a shoot button and that's it. All right. So thinking back to last week, we talked about the Lloyd's um, banking using VR. Um, what was the other? Oh, uh, tiles. Yes. So using yeah. VR in, in the tile industry. And one of the things that that's come up, I think, over the last week that's been interesting to think about is that Whenever you have this emerging technology, uh, whatever it is, whether it's a, a PC, a mobile phone, whatnot, uh, it's never used for the initial, well, it, sorry, how do I frame this? Um, it's never used long-term for what it's used for initially, mm -hmm. right? So, so right now we're thinking like, well, banking's weird and you know, the tile industry is weird and all these different industries, these verticals are weird. But in the end, I question that and I wonder if, if video games will end up being the um, the minority use of VR in the future, or if it will go more towards healthcare or automotive or something of that 
nature where it's less about um, gaming and that becomes a niche. Yeah, I can totally see it in, in telepresence, robot control type of situations where you need to control something that normally would be difficult to control because you can take on the viewpoint of a machine or something else. I mean, to me, the social aspect, right? And this, this is, um, uh, you look at Facebook by an Oculus Rift, right? And Facebook is, is all about their inherently social aspects uh, and connecting people. And then you think of VR as this fundamentally individual activity, but that's only because of what exists now. And yeah. I can imagine that my Facebook friends are spread everywhere throughout the world. But if I grab one of these headsets, it would be really, really cool to meet them, quote unquote, in person in, in a VR space where I could actually see them, talk to them if they don't look like a crappy modeled, you know, bitmoji of themselves. Yeah. But I can imagine that it would be a really interesting way of fulfilling a social connection for people who are dispersed, uh, whether that's in business or whether that's in a social context. I actually think that Sony, coming from the console business, they, they, they used to make games for four people sitting on a couch playing together, right? And now yeah. this VR thing comes in and then all the other three players have to sit back and relax. Well, like that's, that's, but, 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 but that's just the natural transition, right? It all happened when everyone was on the couch and then you know, uh, live, like whether it's PlayStation, Xbox Live, whatever came on and everyone could play dispersed. But the, the trick is that now they made actually five player games where four people can use the controllers, look at the TV, and play against the VR player who is playing in a, in a very different way. So it actually, it opened it up to people who are in the same room. They can play on a TV while the VR player stays in the VR goggles. Yeah. Can I, but I can't do that. I can't come over to your house and play that way. The PlayStation, can I? Yeah, you can. Oh, yeah. I'll see you this weekend. <laughs> All right. So, um, <laughs> the, you know, there is other uh, follow-up that I wanted to do on VR as far as Samsung buying Viv. Mm -hmm. uh, which is, is, is personally very, very interesting, but I think I'm going to go way too long on that topic uh, because of the implications. Well, he, he, here's a short summary, and here's why I won't go into it now. Google has Assistant, Apple has uh, Siri, uh, and Amazon, which doesn't have a phone, which is very sad, has Alexa. But all of these technologies, all of these operating systems are getting AI, uh, well, quote-unquote AI built into them. And so think about it, if you're an Android phone now without, right, Google, if they only put um, their assistant on Pixel, yeah, sure, it's an application you can get on other phones, but that's just a barrier to use. All of a sudden, you've pretty much started to lock out all these other phones in the market that don't have a virtual assistant, right? So Apple has this, Google has this. Uh, and so what happens to HTC? Where do they go? And it feels like Samsung did this as a strategic move to try to get Viv in to keep themselves relevant against, you know, Pixel as a phone or against Apple and Siri. And I wonder for the other, you know, whether that's HTC, whether that's, um, uh, what are the other ones I'm thinking of? Xiaomi uh, or these other mobile phone carriers who use Android, but that won't have the uh, OS integration of an AI uh, companion. Yep. Does that just completely leave them in, in, in the dark? And, and so I, I think that's worth following up in a much longer segment later. Uh, for that Samsung piece, but I, I, I think we can move on to the news. And we have way too, we have way too much to, uh, to discuss in the show notes and news. So I think we, I think we pick a few ones. So I, I want to talk about Amazon Music because uh, you had a bit of an interesting experience with that. Yeah. So last week that was introduced, Amazon Music Unlimited, and they have different price tiers. And they're trying to undercut Spotify by going for $8, I believe. And if you have an Amazon Prime subscription, you can go for $6. And it says for Echo users, you can get it for $4 a month, which is super cheap. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean that kills the barrier, right? Well, 
for for me, it kills the barrier uh, to sign up, right? Because it makes it so easy. It's stupid cheap. It's it's the same cost as I pay for a flat white coffee over here, right? Per month, and I'm assuming that their Alexa skills integration will be a little bit better because it will be again be connected to the operating system, connected to the device. So this is your integration points are much much tighter. And I just don't know if we'll be able to get it because of where we are, right? We sit in Netherlands, with, where they don't technically sell these yet. So that was exactly what I was thinking. And okay, I, I was trying to figure out, okay, can I get that here? I went online to try and buy it from Amazon from the website, and I couldn't get into this uh, price tier for uh, Echo owners, and I I didn't know why. And when I looked it up, it actually turns out you need to order it with the Echo. That way, you can kind of prove to them that I have an Echo, so I'm eligible for the cheaper subscription. So they did this with the dot originally too. You you couldn't order a dot unless you had an elect or God, no, I can't say the name unless you had an Amazon device thingy to order it with. Yeah. Right. And so, so they, they do do that sort of intelligent. It, it's both intelligent because it, it, it doesn't let people screw themselves over with the dot because if people are like, Oh, I'm just going to get the dot and that's going to be it. And then they get it home. It was like the first time I tried to buy the Philips Hue light bulbs and I just bought a bulb and I didn't realize you needed the, um, yeah. uh, the, the bridge. So, in this case, their intentions are a little bit darker because I tried to do it. So I, I'm speaking to my Echo and I'm saying, okay, enable uh, the, the trial for this Music Unlimited service. And immediately it tells me there's a problem with your payment service and you have to enable voice purchasing. And that's the whole trick. I don't have voice purchasing enabled because I don't want to buy things just using my voice or other people buying things just using their voice. But the only way to get this discount is by enabling that feature. I bet that Amazon is betting that people will enable it and not disable it and start using it. Well, of course. I mean, that's the, that's the whole model, right? It's, it's that you, you totally remove any barrier towards purchase. That's the whole idea behind one click, right? One click purchase. And, and, and so they made it stupid simple for you to buy stuff. And now they're making it easier. I mean, they, they, they tried the experiment with the dash button, right? So you could press a button and stuff would show up on your door the next day. And now if I can just say, you know, um, uh, Amazon device, we need to come up with a cool code word for this. Uh, Amazon device, order me, you know, whatever toilet paper I normally order or order me, you know, more coffee or something like that. That type of uh, purchase enablement is exactly what they want, right? Because they make their money off off transactions. So it, it, it makes a lot of sense. Yes, it's a bit, I, I guess you could see it as nefarious or underhanded, but I, I don't know. It, the, my only problem with it is if I don't want to enable it as you didn't, then it's a blocker. And but, so that's sort of annoying. But that being said, they are showing off their features where it allows you to discover music in a nicer way. They have an example where they say, I only want to hear you two songs from the 80s. And it understands that. So, so that, that's the skills part, right? And so, yeah. and so that's that's why the integration is so important. I mean, that's, again, going back to the, the Samsung Viv thing, right? You, you need that tight integration and whether that integration is at the hardware software level, whether that's at the, at the OS level and, and for, you know, Amazon now it's, it's, they have the, the hardware, they have the OS and then they're going to put the music service on top of it, which will then obviously leverage uh, the Amazon device skills yeah. uh, with it. And, and so, yeah, that makes a lot of sense from an integration point. It, it just feels like it's still, it's a great device to order things. It's a great device to maybe control some of my home stuff. Uh, it seems like Apple and Google took some steps ab above them. And uh, I also wonder about their their marketing because Amazon, I, now that I've been living over in, in Europe for a while, I don't see much marketing around Amazon products, but I do see a ton around Spotify. 
And it makes me wonder that Amazon's core business is not necessarily marketing, or they don't, they don't know how to do that really well, right? They tried the Fire Phone that didn't work for a variety of reasons, unrelated. Um, but it feels like their, their core service is ordering, right? So, so ordering, purchase, fulfillment, uh, better logistics, uh, better running warehouses. And then you have this offshoot of music, uh, which I feel like is a natural extension of the Prime, the Amazon Prime aspects. But I do wonder if they are going to be able to put enough marketing, if they're going to know how to tell that story and the marketing and communications that will be able to put a dent in um, Spotify first and then Apple Music second. And I, I imagine they're going to be a, a fast third and they're building up an ecosystem. But I just wonder if they're going to have that competency. Well, for 40% of the price, many people will try, I guess. No, I, I totally agree. And I just wonder if it's going to be one of those situations where you sign up for it and then you sort of forget because it's four euros a month or four dollars a month. Uh, and, and then you're like, yeah, sure. Well, what I, like, I'll use it from time to time. And is that how they win, right? Is, or maybe they win by just simply being lazy. So I'm just going to start telling uh, my Amazon device to play music and it's naturally going to play for my Amazon account. And thus Spotify will be win, um, whittled down. But then it's not available on my phone yet, it is, is it? It is. Do they have a separate app for it? Yep. This is what I haven't investigated. Okay. God damn it. <laughs> no, no, no. Sounds stupid. Okay. I'm going to have to investigate it and come back to it. Um, but very interesting news. There, There's, yeah, there's a lot to, eh, still more to talk about, but it seems like we should probably get onto our main topic. We should. Okay. Okay. So we, we, we're going to switch it up a little bit today. Um, over the past, uh, over the past 19 episodes, it's been you and me talking and we have a main topic. And this, this time we're going to introduce somebody else, uh, to our, uh, to our little conversational topic here. Uh, and she's going to uh, join us and talk a little bit about lessons that she's learned from industrial design. So if we want to, we, uh, we can bring her on up. Lily, welcome. Hi. Hey, would you like to uh, introduce yourself? Uh, sure. I'm Lily. I work at Raft with the guys, and uh, they brought me in to be their guest. The, the, the guys, I, I don't think people notice that you're, you're, you're the only girl who works at Raft. I'm, in, I'm the only girl and I get my own bathroom. It's great. Is it, yeah, we, we, yes, we have, we have a small office with two bathrooms for some reason, and then, and then you get your own. It's a bit of an executive bathroom. That's it's how I view it. Quite fancy. Yeah. Okay, so we brought you on, uh, you know, and this is, this is episode 20, and a lot of times we get bogged down in, in these discussions around technology, and we wanted to switch it back over a little bit to some design topics and tell us a little bit about, I, I could explain this, but I would like you to tell a little bit why we brought you on and, and what we're going to talk about. Well, the podcast was getting really boring. And so you didn't hear that one. Where's the, who's is going to edit that one out, man. And this is, this is the most exciting part of my life. <laughs> um, well, I wrote an article about uh, how industrial design helped shape the way that I do UX. And it's sort of more on the design side of the spectrum, things that we talk about. So I'm going to design it up a bit yep. today. So we're going we're gonna to link to that in the, uh, in the show notes. Uh, but yes, and, and so Lily, so you transitioned over into the field of, of user experience and uh, user interface work, but you originally came from a, a background of industrial design. And I think anyone who works with you in the studio notices that because you tend to sketch a lot. But talk a little bit about how you how you made that transition over from industrial design to to where you are now because it's been a you've lived in quite a number of countries you've worked for quite a number of yeah. companies and you've landed here now and, and how did that transition happen? 
Well, that's a bit of a long story, I guess, but I will try to be brief. I studied industrial design in California at CCA. It's a great school for industrial design and now for in interaction design. They've got They're not awesome paying program. us. You don't need to plug it. It's fine. Uh, but I, I love my school, so <laughs> I'm going to do it anyways. Um, so I was doing industrial design. I was working as an industrial designer a bit at a toy company. And then um, I got a job at Intel doing, well, doing a lot of things. So that's when the transition really started. I was hired as an interaction designer, but officially in the books, I was an industrial designer. And um, so that opened me up to work on a ton of projects. I guess when I started doing concept laptops, that's when I really started using my design methodology and research process skills in other areas besides physical design. So on, on the concept laptops, did you actually get to look at the hardware and software or was it purely a yeah. hardware exploration? Yeah, we, we were designing both um, for systems that were coming out in the near future, which at the time was 2013, 14, 15, 16, and 17. That so was the near future when you were working there. That was okay. the near future. Yeah. So the, that's the laptops that we worked on. And the, the thing at Intel is that we don't, uh, or I don't work at Intel anymore. I work at Raft. <laughs> <laughs> it's not we anymore. Um, they don't market laptops to consumers. They market them to companies like HP and Samsung and Acer. So they, they sell concept laptops as like a menu of hardware and software products that those companies can choose from to build their own laptops. So, so talk to me with your, with your history of industrial design. Again, well, I think one of the first things we noticed as we worked with you is, is your sort of sketching, your iteration on sketching, and, and your um, continual use of pen and paper, which for most of the yeah. people in the office is not something we may scribble from time to time on Post-its, but we don't often do the, the type of visual thinking that you do. And so coming from that, if, if I go back to your industrial side, why is it important to use lessons or to use what you learned in industrial design and applying that to more of a, the digital side of user experience design? So I think that industrial design and interaction design were sort of separated by mistake. Um, sometime in the 80s, they started making uh, commercial laptops for uh, users' consumption, um, the personal computing devices. And at this point, this guy named Bill Moggridge coined the term interaction design, and he sort of said there's two different fields. There's industrial design, which is, you know, the, the shell and the uh, casing that the product is in. And then there's interaction design, which is everything in the screen. And he realized that you need to think about interaction design a little bit differently, so he coined this term. And I think it was a bit of a mistake because... Ever since then, there's been this broad separation, and now you can study industrial design or interaction design, even though you benefit from the skills and the base learnings of both. I mean, I, I, to that point, I would argue that in, industrial design obviously needs to take into account pieces of interaction design. And this is the weird thing where interaction design seems to get applied to a digital experience, right? To like boxes on a screen and rectangles on a screen. Uh, but not necessarily when you think about uh, interaction design, does it get applied to a service designer user experience, which is honestly what it should get applied to, right? Because like the idea of service or user experience design is really about the end and point and really how people are interacting with everything along 
um, that that customer journey or that timeline. And so, I, yeah, I, I would fully agree that they got separated for for I think a good reason, right? Is because the the skills that it would take to do on screen digital is slightly different from doing a hardware design. Uh, but unfortunately, it seems like where education has brought us is you have an interaction design, which has been made to be digital screen, and uh, then industrial design, which has been, you know, oh, you design cups or computers or the hardware for things, when in fact, industrial design has a ton to do with interaction work. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think, you know, the tools are very different. So instead of 3D modeling and uh, building things in a shop, physical things, um, and putting them in people's hands to test, you know, the button and the handle and the and the physicality of a thing. Um, we have different tools. We use Sketch and we use Envision. And so, so a lot of the tools are different, but the underlying uh, methodology, I think, can be very much the same. And in school, that's something that uh, my classmates and I realized when we were working on projects. So often we would uncover through our design process the underlying problem that we're trying to solve and sometimes a product wasn't the solution and at that at that time we were thinking about sustainability a lot and we were thinking a lot about how making another product and introducing that into the world is not the best option all the time sometimes an app on a phone that you already own is a better a much better option sometimes a service is way better sometimes just improving customer service is better and, and there's a number of ways that companies can solve their users' problems, not just through new products and vice versa, not just through changing the boxes around on your screen. You can also solve your users' problems by better service design or, you know, you look at the number of touch points that companies have available to improve their product and their customer service, their user experience. So, so let me unpack that into two different things. Uh, the first being, you mentioned that the tools were different and I, I would... Yes, the, the tools on what you make, you know, how you make the details of these are different. Uh, but you did say something important, which is the methodologies. A lot of the underlying principles and methods are the same. But I would say how you described um, testing of industrial design would be the same as how you would test a digital design, right? The idea is that you put something in people's hands and you let them touch it. So it's, uh, to your point of artificial separation, it really is just the individual tools yeah. um, that separate it. But as far as once you get out of those tools and once you're testing it or once you're um, collecting feedback on that or, or the, the higher level abstraction of, of how you look at it within a whole process, um, it seems to me like that is all the same and it literally just becomes, and, and that's, again, to your point, interaction design is interaction design across you know products whether yeah. that be digital or physical or, or, or other. Yeah. Well, I approach the process the same way as I would an industrial design project. So you brought up sketching in the beginning, um, and that was a huge part of my schooling. It was absolutely drilled into me. We sketched 50 pages a day, and, and I'm talking like the really big tabloid sheets of paper. A, a, A1. Is it A1? A1. Is that, is, that, is, is, that, is that A1 that we're thinking of? Really big tabloid big. sketches? like. Okay. Yeah, A1. Chus is now sitting in the background a little bit. <laughs> so we had to do 50 pages like that every week. And it was so drilled into my brain that now I sometimes can't think without sketching. It's just an integral part of the way that I think. So, so do you think, and, and um, 
this is, I, I don't want to veer too much off topic, but I think this is a really interesting idea of this artificial separation because you come into something like user experience design where people misuse the term all the time, right? Because they, they use it uh, like I work at a software company and I do boxes on a screen and they're like, I do user interface or I'm sorry, user experience design uh, when really that's user interface design yeah. and user experience is a much broader uh, term oh, to describe. But is it? Because, it? because uh, interface can mean so many things. Joe. Okay, okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Oh, good point. I, uh, but yeah, that's especially exactly, since the last, yeah. you know, 19 episodes of our podcast have talked about interface being a chat window to voice to, okay, yeah, you win that one. Yeah, but that's it. It's that sort of like they were separated at birth. Yes. Yeah. And now I think there's a movement to bring them back together. Oh, like, how uh, can See, that's you... where I was going to go, right? So you have like user experience yeah. and service design, right? Which is now doing exactly what you're saying, which is bringing all these pieces back together and make you think more holistically about the problem of how do people experience a solution uh, in a larger context and not purely about whether you use... Uh, CAD or Sketch or whatever uh, that stupid program is. Who's what's that program that you love to play around with? Since you're in the background again, Framer? no, not Framer. Um, no, the, the other one that you one. build blocks with, the blocky one that you made a Christmas tree Bo with. Voxel. Uh, Magica Voxel. Ma Magica Okay. <laughs> this is gonna be. This is gonna be great. You're just gonna hear this little voice in the background, like yelling stuff. Um, but yeah, so you have the individual tools for it and those become less important, right? Because it's at that point you can teach a tool to anybody, but as you abstract design away to yeah. really thinking about, uh, these, these broader ideas or methodologies that becomes so much more of a skill that, that I don't think is usually thought of at a more senior level of designer, but maybe that's something that we need to look at, uh, as far as how you teach or think about design overall. Yeah. That's sort of why I give so much credit to my school because, I feel like I learned thinking at a different level than a lot of graduate programs. What, what, what school is that again? California College of the Arts. Sounds like a great school. It's a great school. We, 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 should, we should link in the show notes. <laughs> <laughs> um, yeah. Okay, so, so, so to come back to this, you, you, put, you posted this article on Medium. It got great traction, uh, and it describes five things that you've taken over from uh, industrial design, over to, to what you're doing in your now daily life. And, and so for a lot of the things that you're doing now at RAF, this is more design strategy. This is anywhere from uh, service design. But it, but it does have industrial ideas as far as, you know, we just did a project a little while ago for public bus systems. And you have to think about what the hardware around you, hardware in this case being bus, being seats, being bus stops. So it's not, you know, a cup. Um, but you also have to think about the digital experience. Uh, so, you, you know, you get a chance to put all this together. But out of the, the five things that you wrote about, like, give me one example of one that you think is really important for people. Yeah. Okay. So this one goes back to my story sort of beyond Intel. Uh, Cause it was sort of the first one that made me realize that the way that I was thinking about things was a little different from how uh, the other interaction designers were thinking about things. My first job after Intel was in Australia at a digital consultancy called precedent. And we were working on these projects and I started realizing that everyone was thinking about things differently than the way I was. And there was something bothering me that was missing about our process. And that thing that was missing was principles. And in industrial design, it's to me really important to nail down what the principles are of success for your product before you start ideating or while you're ideating, you need to start to define what are the priorities and of the principles of this thing. How will it be successful? So I, I think I think I know where you're going to go with this. Um, but if you had to, 
Why is that important? Why is it important to outline the principles at the beginning? Um, I mean, you said, you know, set up your principles for success. So I assume that if you set them up correctly, you'll be able to measure success. But are these objective principles? Are these subjective principles? Are they to get the team on board? Or um, what are these really doing? Because you said measuring success, but can you explain a little bit more on on how? They are subjective. Principles are for uh, the different stakeholders involved in a product. So mainly you should probably be thinking about your users and what the principles of success are for your user. So if I think of an example, actually, I'll use the Bill Moggridge example. So uh, Bill Moggridge designed the Grid Compass, the first laptop that was commercially available. And when he was doing this, he sort of, I think, misidentified principles at the start. So at the very beginning, when he was designing it, he was really focused on the industrial design of the product and he put a handle on it and he put these little legs on the bottom of the laptop so that it was ergonomic and your keyboard is at the right height and he he included all these little like physical features and i think the principle he defined and he was focusing on was mobility he was making this like awesome future briefcase thing and because he had that principle defined all of his features were sort of aiming at that goal of like, how do we make this thing uh, super mobile and ergonomic and easy for people to, to cart around? But once he got the first working model back, he opened it up. It was the same moment when he sort of discovered interaction design, if, if you think that's what happened. <laughs> and um, so he opens it up and then he realizes that everything revolves around the screen and that actually the most important principles lie in your interaction with the screen and he hadn't given it any thought yet so he completely changed principles or changed the priority of those principles and you can see that reflected in the laptops that we have today there the physical design of the laptop is completely optimized for maximum screen and our phones are basically just screens our ipads our screens and our, our laptops are just kind of screens attached to keyboards, right? Uh, it, it's interesting just because it is still quite a, a mobile situation. But I, I get I get with what you're saying, whereas, yeah, you indexed on one thing. And, and that goes back to the beginning of the conversation with the VR aspect of, you know, where, where are we indexing now versus where should we be indexing to get an appropriate uh, return out of the technology yeah. and, and out of the device? So. Well, I don't think that we've abandoned mobility. I mean, we still go for no, super light. Not. I mean, yeah, no, but, we're hypermobile at this point. But we make them really slippery, right? <laughs> I mean, I dropped my phone. <laughs> I dropped my phone and cracked the screen on Friday. And um, I can tell you that it was not optimized for me moving it around. Oh, <laughs> okay. Um, so I, I, I think for now, just looking at time, uh, we can wrap up. But we will link the article in the show notes, because there is a lot more in there yeah, um, that describes just the different, the other different lessons that you've pulled over from industrial design. Um, but yeah, so Lily, thank you for coming on. Thanks and, for having uh, me. Chris, is there, is there anything else that you uh, wanted to say? No, I'm good for today. You've been, you've been very quiet over the past uh, 20 minutes. So you didn't give me a mic. No, we need another mic. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well then in this case, Lily, <laughs> thank you very much. You're welcome, Joe. <laughs> and uh, I'll talk to you next week. Bye, man. Later.